Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. G'day and welcome to the call. Ten stocks picked by you two experts. One hour. It is Thursday, the 15th of June. I'm Andrew Gagan. Great to have you with us. And joining us today, Michael Gable from Fairmont Equities and Scott Phillips from The Motley Fool. Welcome to both of you. Now, of course, we've uh, we had the Fed out overnight. No surprise, keeping rates on hold. But maybe a surprise. The expectations there could lift rates one or two times more. Uh, just had unemployment data out locally. Uh, that's remaining, the, the labor market remaining really tight. Um, Michael, what's, how are you interpreting all of this and is it influencing your investment decisions at the moment? No, I mean, it's it's all sort of working out as as we thought it you know, may well do. And, um, you know, in terms of the Fed, uh, we expected, well, like most people, they would hold um, in terms of rate rises. We also expected the commentary knowing what what they're like to be fairly hawkish and it was fairly hawkish but I think the reality is that this you know this should be the last um, you know we probably have seen the peaks in uh, in interest rates in the US I mean clearly uh, CPI is trending lower it's not in the target range but we need to remember we're looking at something that is clearly trending lower so so far that's going well I mean one of the comments overnight as to um, you know what's happened over the last few months they they did mention that the US economy has been stronger than they expected a few months ago so mm. you know the the US isn't plunging into a recession uh, CPI is trending lower rates are probably on hold so you know I think they're still treading that fine line between you know do you end up with a technical recession or not here yeah. locally unemployment uh, has has dropped again so you know jobs is you know, jobs growth has been strong um, you know, I think our market, our RBA, sorry, will most likely um, stay in line with what the US is doing. So we've probably seen the end of rate rises as well. Inflation here is heading lower, but we're lagging behind the US. Um, look, I think everything seems to be not too bad. I mean, I still remain quite optimistic. Mm. And we've seen in the, it's quite interesting, um, apparently New Zealand, I, I saw someone refer to them as entering a recession, but as we know, we're talking last quarter last year and first yep. quarter this year, slightly negative growth. And their share market's not falling off a cliff today mm. on that news because we're, you know, we're looking in the rearview mirror there uh, and the share market's looking forward. So I, I still remain quite optimistic that um, markets can still do OK this year. Yeah. All right. Well, I mean, you've highlighted that resilience there, certainly in the US uh, economy, but also, Scott, the uh, the Aussie economy remaining pretty resilient at this point. Does that augur well for, for equities, do you think? That's a good question, Andrew. I tweeted only this morning, mate, that I actually think we've passed a tipping point economically. If you think about the movements we've seen over the past three weeks, maybe four weeks, so we've seen Baby Bunting and Adairs both out with disappointing sales updates. 
but it is shareholder, unfortunately. I was before the update, so I felt that particular pain. The DJ's numbers that were out during the week showing that one week of sales had fallen between 10 and 38% across their stores. Uh, we've seen, of course, the national savings rate fall below 4% of GDP, uh, sorry, 4% of national income. Uh, and we've also seen the Commonwealth Bank uh, spending indicators, household spending indicators, suggesting contraction in spending for clothing, travel, entertainment, and the like. Uh, there's some ANZ numbers out this morning, too, I don't have on hand. But, uh, you know, I think I'm not thinking we will necessarily have a recession here. It's definitely possible. It's also true, though, that we have to remember the market looks forward. To Michael's point, um, if it's expected, then it's already in the share prices. It's only when the market gets something they weren't expecting, whether it's rates, whether it's economic news or something else, the response to that is when we see movement. So to some degree, I think the market should have already expected these sorts of results, but it does seem a pretty clear trend from a retail spending perspective. I think finally the RBA has had the effect it's been trying to have for the last, what, 13, 14 months, 15 months almost, uh, because it's been trying to soak up that excess savings rate right through that period from a high of 20 odd percent in 2021 down to 1% to 4% now. I reckon that of all those numbers is the key one. This says the RBA is finally at the point where it can now influence really significantly retail spending, which has been trying to do, as I said, for that 15 months. So I reckon that's kind of where we are. Um, I probably would suspect the RBA par is probably one more rate rise, although I don't think Michael's necessarily wrong. I, would be, I wouldn't be surprised in the slightest if we've seen the last one already, particularly if these retail sales continue to be weak um, and inflation can continue to track down between now and the next formal CPI number that's released. Whether it's enough, though, our mm. inflation is still 6.8, the US down in the 4% range. Uh, it's, it's got a long, long way to go from here. Yep, yep. Still much to watch, as you point out there. All right. Okay. Well, look, let's get into uh, the stocks uh, as picked by everyone out there. Uh, our first five, uh, ALS, Cleaner Securities, Platinum Asset Management, Costa Group, and Global Traffic Network. Bit of an eclectic bunch there. All right. Now, a stock of the day, uh, IAG. In fact, this is off the back of yesterday's Investor Day that the company held. Uh, brokers updating their, uh, their moves on the stock as a result. Also, investors responding positively. In fact, uh, the uh, share price there hitting a 52-week high. Uh, it's up again today, in fact. It's on target to achieve its FY23 guidance. Upgraded its medium-term targets, uh, and it's confident that it will achieve its guidance around 10% of gross written premium growth in FY23. Scott, um, insurers, interesting space to be in, but how do you look at IAG? Yeah. It's fascinating, mate, because we've got, on one hand, really massive premium increases, desperately trying to chase down the, the cost of repairs in particular and replacement specifically. If you think about what's going on with cost of lumber, steel, labour, you've already talked about the unemployment numbers out this morning. Um, these have been a really tough range of kind of concerns, issues for insurers to deal with over the past 18 months. And I think on one hand, so here's what I would say. Insurance pricing is not the same as, but not that different from commodity pricing, which is uh, it's really commoditized and it's very, very difficult often to get a proper handle on the long-term future. NRMA or IAG have talked about the NRMA brand and their, their hopes for price increases, the other brands as well, over the next 12 or 18 months. But whether that can continue post this is the big question because at the end of the day, you are simply trying to make a margin on the collection of premiums relative to what you've got to pay out. You can only collect premiums above a certain level 
price-wise if your competitors allow you to and vice versa. So we have periods of great uh, opportunity and periods of, of, of tough circumstance. I would suspect that insurance profits are probably pretty good over the next year or two as this high pricing cycle continues to roll through. Uh, thereafter, I expect, as it always tends to be the case, pricing gets keener and keener and profits get harder to come by. So if you're a short-term trader, you might want to take a guess on what the next six to 12 months might do. I'm a long-term investor. I don't try and play the short-term game. So if you ask me how likely is IAG to make money over the next five, seven, 10 years, given that volatile pricing market, I'm going to say I'm not entirely sure. I'm encouraged that they are getting ahead of price inflation. I think they seem to be doing a relatively good job of making sure things like increased climate risks are increasingly priced in. I'm not someone who believes that climate change poses a imminent and real threat to insurers with, who are doing short tail insurance. If you get to reprice your policy every 12 months, you can allow for that. I wouldn't want to take a 40-year policy now on, on the impact of climate change, but a, but a 12-month policy, you should be able to reprice it. So it's less about that for me, more about the industry dynamics. Really super competitive industry. Uh, IAG is one of the better insurers out there. Probably the best quality insurer, I think, on the ASX. Uh, I don't love the price at 17 times earnings, though, even if they do manage to get slightly higher profits, again, unless you're trying to trade that through. As a long-term investor, I'd want a cheaper price. Uh, I, I don't think I'd probably run out to sell them. If you own them, a 2.6% dividend yield, you're probably a, a more conservative investor. Maybe you like the income, maybe you've got a diversified dividend stream. If that's the case, I, I wouldn't necessarily say you should rush out and sell the shares, particularly if short-term profits are going to be better. Uh, but I wouldn't be buying either. Probably a solid hold for me. Yep, calling it a hold. All right, good one, Michael. Um, yeah, generally similar points there. So, you know, I think that, look, they've had a great run for 12 months. Um, you know, longer term, it's been a poor investment. But if you've managed to get it in those 12 months, you've been in the sweet spot. Uh, and I think these share the share price can continue trending higher. But I think, you know, we've seen the better part of the gains um, and as Scott mentioned, it's not cheap anymore. So I think as a hold, I think you could continue on and, and see a little bit more upside, but buying it at this point is a bit risky. I do believe competition can increase down the track. Um, and look, with insurers, I've never been involved with insurers because they're always one natural disaster away from you know, having an issue. So um, look, I think with those risks, yeah, the price doesn't factor in those those potential risks so look happy to hold but buying yep. up buying up here is a bit bit risky do, do you agree with scott is it do you regard it as the as the best quality insurer um look to be honest i haven't ranked them because i just don't invest in them but yeah. um so you're still but yeah, if i was to compare it to yeah. qbe i mean that's been you know longer term all that, right that's been a bit more of a basket case that's for sure so yeah. um yeah look i suppose if i had to pick an insurer it'd be iag um but it'd only be to hold i wouldn't be buying it up here Yep. All right. That is a double hold then for our stock of the day, which is IAG. All right. Let's get into the ones as picked by you. Uh, Troy wants to know about ALS, ticket code ALQ. It is uh, provides testing, inspection, certification, verification services and the like. Um, and having increased its, uh, its dividend quite significantly, in fact. Um, Michael, mm. what's your view on ALS? Um, look, a bit bit neutral on this one. I mean, they had a profit result a few weeks ago and there were aspects of it that were surprisingly good. So anything related to the commodity space worked out well for them. Um, their life sciences division was a little bit, bit under expectations. Um, 
you know, the share price has just been fairly flat over time. It's very volatile. It's, you know, maybe towards the bottom end of that range. So it, it might be offering a bit more value. But I guess, you know, for me, I'd look at it and say, okay, well, maybe there's an opportunity, but what other opportunities are there in the market? And if they're in the space where they're benefiting from increased spend in the commodity space, I'd rather just buy a commodity stock if I think there's upside in that that sector, you'd get more bang for your buck. So, um, yeah, again, look, I'd be happy to hold it, but I, to me, it's not compelling enough to, to buy at these levels. All right. Scott, your thoughts? Yeah, I think that's pretty much spot on. Michael's covered it very nicely. This is a business that should continue to do well. If you think about the increasing amounts of testing that we choose to do and, and require, frankly, from a regulatory perspective, for across a whole lot of things, everything from mining through to food and pharma, as you've already mentioned, Andrew, that this is, it should be in a sweet spot. It should be the sort of business you can assume will be more than fine operationally, uh, more than enough revenue, more than enough business for years and years and years to come. I think that's probably the case. Uh, but to Andrew's, uh, sorry, to, to Michael's point, um, uh, you know, I've got 18.6 times earnings here, something close to that. It's it's a It's a... Uh, a way too high a price for a business like this. With one caveat, that is the last, they had a couple of disappointing years, 2015, 2016. Since then, the, the sales and, and profit growth have been pretty consistent. And if there is a big enough market to continue that level of growth, then the PE may not be as high as it seems because that growth will kind of catch up with it and surpass it pretty quickly. If this is the the, the quality growth business that it appears, then maybe there is more opportunity that I'm giving it credit for. I wouldn't sell it. I don't think it's too expensive to sell. I think the business itself is fundamentally sound. Uh, plenty of underlying demand, as I said. Uh, but I think with I'm with Michael, it's it's probably a pretty solid hold at a meaningfully cheaper price. Or if I had a higher degree of confidence in its ability to grow at a compound rate for an extended period that PE might come into a bit sharper relief and maybe it's worth buying, uh, but I don't have that level of confidence to, to hold for me. Yep, okay, well, that is a double hold then for ALS. All right, um, something completely different now, and I don't know that we've actually covered this before. It is Kena Securities, picked by uh, Annie. Uh, it's, um, it's a financial services group uh, in Papua New Guinea, essentially, a bank there. Uh, it's um, having recently reported, managing to uh, keep a lid on some bad debts there. I guess maybe you need to consider some sovereign risk here. Um, Scott, is this one you've looked at before? It, it is, Andrew. It's actually really, really tempting to the kind of the, the deep buried uh, value contrarian investor in me, if you believe the financials, it's currently trading on three and a half times earnings, which, you know, if, if you're if you're any sort of investor, you're saying, you know what, that seems uh, too good, either too good to be true or too good to ignore. And that is the question for investors, which one is it? Because it's either hugely great value or it's potentially a value trap. And it does come down, mate, to your belief and confidence in the Papua New Guinean economy. Uh, their regulatory system, uh, the ability to extract the returns from that market absent any particular challenges. And again, in the context of uh, not only bad debts for Kina itself, but with the global economy potentially or, or probably definitely slowing down over the next six to 12 months, what impact it has on, on that economy and, and that business. And this is really one that you need a lot of local knowledge and, and comfort with before you invest. We talk a lot about sovereign risk. We're often talking about mining companies in Africa or Asia. Uh, and this time around, we're talking about a financial services company in PNG. Um, and I, I've been up there. I was, I was fortunate enough to trek Kokoda quite a few years ago. It, it is a, a really fascinating place. There is a lot of 
business being done. There was unfortunately also a lot of poverty and frankly, a very significant amount of corruption up there. And that's a real challenge for anyone investing in PNG in general or Kena specifically, uh, whether or not you can get the returns from a business like this, again, that looks on the balance, uh, on the balance, on the face of it, you know, very, very, very cheap. Uh, you don't have to do much. It's a 14.8% dividend yield according to the numbers I've got here too. So, uh, you know, the question is, can you get your money back before something goes wrong? It does feel like one of those things where you kind of almost got to buy it, assuming you may lose some money. It's hard to say that a, a business on a three and a half times earnings is speculative, but you've got to almost kind of have in the back of your mind a non-zero chance of a meaningful uh, issue that could eventually end up in collapse or, or meaningful dilution. So it's really, really tough. I can't in good conscience, mate, recommend it as a buy because of those sovereign risk and, and general economic economic uncertainties up in PNG. I'd, I'd like to, uh, you know, if the, if the bank was based here, it was a you know, Western Australian bank or a Tasmanian bank at, at three and a half times earnings, I'd be saying knock yourselves out. But I, I don't think I, I could. Not to say it can't go well or won't go well. It's just very, very, very difficult to have a well-balanced, well-researched view on the challenges and the potential risks and the likelihood of those risks coming to pass. Uh, if I owned it, I probably... Can you say you'd sell something at three and a half times earnings? Maybe not, but uh, you know, you'd want to have a very, very uh, cash iron stomach for, for volatility and risk. You almost want to buy this one believing there's a decent chance it goes to zero, and if it doesn't, then you're ahead. Uh, so maybe think about positioning it that way. I'm going to say hold, mate. Just it's too cheap to ignore. Uh, it's just too risky to buy. Yeah, okay. You said a hold, but I'm sort of taking it as a no, really, because you, know, <laughs> you talked about that risk there. Yeah, all right. Well, uh, Michael, is that the mm. sort of the view you take? Yeah, exactly. It's, um, it's, it's too hard to understand um, what the catalyst could be to make, to make this, uh, you know, this, this one improve. So I think, you, you know, you need to be living there. You need to be on the ground in PNG and understand that, that economy and that society inside out to hopefully get to a point where you think, hang on, things are really picking up here and uh, this, this stock's dirt cheap and now's the time to buy it. But um, yeah, it could be a value trap where if it's on a PE of three, I mean, maybe in 12 months from now, it's still on a PE of three and the rest of the markets may be re-rated and gone off and, um, you know, the economies mm. in Australia are doing doing well again and, and our, our stocks are doing well, but but this one isn't. So it could end up being a huge opportunity cost. I mean, the, the it looks like the recent peak in the share price was almost $1.50 um, at the end of 2019. So it's, it's already halved. I'd say, uh, look, given that it is in a downtrend, I'd I'd, I'd even say it's a sell just because, you know, from a charting perspective, you've, you've got that downside momentum and, um, you know, it might get worse before it gets better. Yep. Okay. All right. That is Kena Securities. All right. Let's move right along now. Our third stock is Platinum Asset Management. Uh, this is picked by Ben. It is a listed funds management company, uh, managing around $18 billion. However, you look at the share price, it is not pretty. Uh, certainly over the past five years or so, it's, I think it's off about 70 plus percent. Uh, it's been a difficult space, particularly recently. Michael, mm. how do you view Platinum Asset Management? Um, yeah, look, for me, this is definitely not a, not a buy, if anything, it's a sell. So um, yeah, it looks like the share price peaked in 2015, nearly $9, um, and it's around $1.70 now. So. You know, they've had a long time and clearly that's a reflection of, of fund performance flows. And, and we know that with with um, fund managers, you know, they are very leveraged to um, 
to, to, to fund inflows and, and unfortunately outflows as well. Um, and look, if they haven't been able to turn the business around in the last, what, eight years since the peak in the share price, um, you know, what gives me confidence that they'll do it now? I mean, there has been talk in the last year that, um, you know, we've entered this this golden era now of value investing, but it just doesn't seem to, you know, maybe that's a bit of a red herring. I'm, I'm just not seeing the results. So, yeah, I, just nothing to give me confidence that now is the time to buy uh, any of these fund managers. Um, look, maybe the one positive could be that I, I do think we are entering a period where stock picking uh, will come to the fore, given a number of years of just yeah, ETFs, passive investing, you just had to be in the market now to be trickier. Yeah, so but, yeah, can, bottom up essentially, that's the way yeah, you go now. Yeah, but, but, but can this company, um, you know, make the most of that? Yeah, well, you know, being a stock And broker, is it, I, is I it any stocks. better place than any of the other fund managers out I, there? I, I just can't saying, see given it's track record, well, the answer is no. Yeah, well, you've got Magellan and you've got, yeah, there's, there's a number out there that just aren't, aren't performing. I guess, you know, you're looking at the funds and the performance of the funds and then, you know, on this show, we're looking at the actual share prices of, of those businesses and, mm. and maybe some of those funds do okay, but um, but the share prices are not performing because of outflows and, and, and other issues associated with the business. So I, I, I still think it's too hard basket for, for fund managers. All right. So I'd be avoiding it. Yeah, okay. Yep. Um, so Scott, yeah, funds management, who wants to be there? Uh, what, <laughs> <laughs> what's your view then, particularly of Platinum? You know, it's funny, mate. Like, I, I actually think everyone should almost want to be there based on the fundamentals. And it's one of those situations where, as an analyst, you kind of got to follow, not necessarily the money share price-wise, but follow the performance rather than the theory. If you think about funds management businesses, we've got a, a growing share market in terms of the value of the market and, and assets being, uh, you know, re-rated upwards almost permanently, consistently, not every day, not every year. But over time, you expect the market to go higher. If your job is to clip the ticket on that, you should be doing pretty well. You've got more money being thrown at it with superannuation, so the sheer dollar value of what you're investing. Everything should be going in the right direction with a couple of a couple of asterisks. First is the very fragmented industry funds management and money tends not to be particularly sticky. And second, there is continual pressure on fees when it comes to, uh, you know, across the board. We've seen the ETF wars recently. Uh, this is obviously not ETF specific, but over time, uh, you know, the funds, I think, will have to reduce their management fees in particular to compete with some of the other alternatives out there in investing. So on one hand, some really, really nice tailwinds. On the other hand, some nice headwinds. And then you've got the fund-specific stuff. And I mentioned the, the, the flighty capital and, and the, the fickle investors in these funds. A couple of months, a couple of quarters, a couple of years of underperformance, and they're, they're gone. And we've seen that with Magellan. We are continuing to see that with Platinum, as Michael's already mentioned. Um, the earnings have been really disappointing for a long period of time, heading exactly the wrong way. Not at a rate of knots. Uh, but enough to say you don't want to be paying too much for a business that seems to be continuing to to lose mandates and to delivering less and less profit over time. Uh, I, as I said, I, it's one of those where I, I want to say a basket of fund managers should do well, and maybe they would uh, over time and, and maybe from here. Uh, there is no clear sign, as Michael says, that Platinum's turning itself around on any of those metrics, and maybe that makes it a, a value play, maybe it makes it a contrarian pick, but you could have said that five years ago and still be looking at losses now and wondering when you were going to finally get a turnaround. So without a, a specific sense that Platinum has rediscovered its mojo or investors have rediscovered their love for Platinum funds, I think it's probably one to leave on the sidelines. 
Of the group, I probably prefer Pinnacle Investment Management. p is the code. If you're looking for a fund manager, almost by definition, because these guys are a, a house of funds, they've got that internal diversification. They they manage to um, take part ownership in some of the underlying funds. They provide the back-end services. So given the choice, that's probably my preference. Uh, if I own Platinum now, would I sell it? I don't think so, mate. Not at the, not the current multiple and the current yield. You're probably getting a nice enough return almost from income alone. But again, just with an asterisk, you want to be a little bit careful. It doesn't continue to deteriorate. So the dividend keeps falling based on the share price falling and so on. Uh, I'm going to say a hold. That's probably a, yep. a not, not, a, not, a, not a fake sell, mm. a real hold this time. Um, I think it's, it's worth hanging on to, but certainly not enough evidence to suggest you want to put more money in it at the moment. Okay, I'm calling that a non-convincing hold then from Scott. <laughs> Inventing right. categories as you go, Andrew, I like it. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's move right along now. Costa Group, uh, this is certainly different. Uh, it, uh, look, it, it produces, it's a food producer, uh, therefore it is affected and by the weather, and that certainly hurt it uh, over the past uh, 12 months, locally at least. Uh, look, grows uh, avocado, berries, citrus. Um, however, international operations doing well. Um, look, it, it's, it's, these are always tricky, aren't they, uh, Scott? Particularly any sort of dealing with any sort of real ag-related business. Yeah, agriculture is incredibly difficult, Andrew. We've seen elders, uh, a business I quite like actually, just being hit from pillar to post by the market based on expectations and underperformance. Uh, we've also come off uh, agriculturally, a very good couple of years in most of Australia when it comes to crop yields and prices. Uh, so those guys are, are probably, they're probably locked in the best of times. Uh, whether the worst of times is coming is an open question, but certainly everything, the tide was all the way in for them and they really made full use of that. When it comes to Costa, these guys are really interesting. Look, it's, it's been a very checkered history since a listing. Uh, we had recommended it to our members to hold currently. So let me put that up front. This one's a hold for me. It's the business that should have some really good pricing power, and it has a really great diversified uh, cropping strategy, both in terms of the types of products it produces, but also where it produces them. Uh, I can't remember the exact numbers now, but most of their commodities are available 10 or 12 months a year, even though the seasons in specific locations are relatively short, whether that's because they're growing them in different parts of the country or different parts of the world. Uh, there's some growing in greenhouses and other things. They're really trying very, very hard to produce year-round crop. And that has some really good advantages. So it's one of those companies that has a lot of promise. I think the way it's going about it, uh, the relationships with supermarkets, they're all really positive. So it's it's kind of in the box seat, a little bit like Platinum we talked about before. All the things that should be able to set it up for success are coming together. It's been unable to deliver that largely because of that agricultural reality. Now, Again, this is not necessarily cyclical, but it is volatile based on simple things like weather and uh, climate. These things are going to be ongoing challenges and opportunities for Costa. Uh, it's currently trading on, what have I got there, uh, 25 times earnings, but it's 25 times a very depressed level of earnings. And it's been so volatile over time. It's hard to use that number specifically. This is not one for the uh, risk-averse investor. It is going to be volatile because investors, and the business itself is going to be volatile, and investors' expectations and sentiment is going to continue to be volatile as well. It is, as you've already said, mate, the, the reality of the agriculture space. I think it's a better business than its current profitability is showing. That's why we've got it on a hold and we haven't sold it. Mm. Uh, I don't think that's obviously cheap enough to buy right now. So uh, that this one, this is a very convincing hold, mate. We're, yeah, okay. we're right down the middle. No new category for this one. This is a hold. All right, you're definitive on that one, Michael. <laughs> Um, yeah, look, I'd have it as a hold. Maybe I'd call it a tentative hold um, for, 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 you know, for all the obvious risks. And look, um, yeah, Scott mentioned all the all the key points. I think 
you know, one of the main reasons why I would keep it as a hold is just, okay, if I'm thinking out you know, what might be happening in the next six to 12 months with this company, I mean, we did see with their recent um, uh, announce, uh, results announcement, they were talking about, um, it looks like inflation cost in, you know, costs coming down um, sort of on the farming side of things. And okay, it's hard to get um, staff at the moment, but you know, if we've got obviously migration sort of kicking in and, and inflation does tend to sort of continue to come down, maybe at, at the cost level, it, it's an improvement for them. And I guess sort of similar to IAG, where they're only one natural disaster away from, from a problem. I mean, you know, Costa Group, I guess is you know a drought or a flood away from from a problem there as well. So there's you know potential risk that something like that comes up that we're not expecting. But it looks like in terms of costs that it should be trending lower. Um, you know, crops seem to be doing well. You mentioned um, they're doing well internationally. So mm. probably a bit of upside there. Um, too many risks for me to be buying it. Right. Um, and as you know, uh, Scott mentioned elders as well. I mean, I think both of those businesses, um, I think they're the type of business, if you, you know, to have more confidence, you need to, I think you need to really be, you know, sort of living out in those areas. You need to be in the industry. Um, I think it's hard for, for us sometimes, to be honest, sort of sitting in an office to really appreciate all the nuances and everything that's going on right. in those industries. So it is quite difficult. So given those risks, well, that, that is an unconvincing hold, as you've said there, <laughs> you're pretty tentative about it, unlike Scott. All right, okay, let's, uh, our fifth stock <laughs> is Global Traffic Network, Jeff suggesting this one. Uh, interesting, it's, um, it's a traffic reporting service and in the name, as it suggests, Global, uh, providing reports to radio and TV stations in Australia, Canada, uh, Brazil, the UK. Interesting, I haven't come across this one before, but uh, Michael, you take a look at the share price mm. uh, ever since it's IPO. Uh, it's just been on a downward trajectory ever since. Yeah, and um, obviously being someone that looks at charts, that would concern me. And look, I, I wouldn't have it as a hold. Um, one of the main reasons is just the lack of liquidity. Um, so it averages about $10,000 a day. So mm. look, if you were to hold it, you'd have to make sure that what you're holding is a fraction of that. So you can get out pretty quickly if, if you need to. So for those reasons, I couldn't buy it. I mean, in terms of the business, uh, look, I mean, they it's a $93 market cap for what they do. So, you know, they seem to have captured a decent part of that market, but your know, radio advertising, um, yeah, the economy is sort of dipping here. I, even though I think the economy will pick up, um, obviously later on, um, I just don't know if that's going to translate. With you know, with the market forward-looking, I don't know if that's going to translate just yet um, into an increased share price. Um, yeah, a bit bit hard for me to be holding this one, to be honest. Yeah. Well, so we just call it a no. Yeah. yeah. Okay, Scott. Yeah, Michael's summarized it beautifully. I think the question for most investors is what sort of investor are you and what are you looking for? I'd almost take Michael's last comment and then kind of broaden it out to a real question of portfolio construction. And while we're here to do a yes or no on these companies, and we absolutely would and will, um, shouldn't will, the, the question really for me is kind of what is likely to happen moving forward? And also what proportion of your portfolio are you prepared to take risks with versus wanting a more uh, conservative or, or, or mainstream approach? If you, to Michael's point, I think the economy is probably got some tougher times ahead, but will pick up. Now, 
if if you look at the the recent GTN results and say they've been suffering over a, a couple of years worth of kind of advertising pulling out, not really getting to scale, you know, if you were to put the odds of success from this point, or at least a higher volume of profit, and therefore potentially a higher share price, I think it's probably more likely than not. Now. That doesn't mean it's necessarily a buy, right? Because there's anything that could happen. And this is a very, very, very risky proposition if you were to invest in it. So I'm actually going to talk out of both sides of my mouth, Andrew. It's a sell for me because I don't think you can have any degree of confidence whatsoever in this business's ability to return to previous levels of profitability. But those previous levels were pretty good. And if and when it can return to them, if it is genuinely cyclical rather than something structural in the business, there's a very, very good chance. And we saw the chart just before. Very good chance the market will pay more for this business in future. So if you were someone who wanted to, you know, put a put a couple of chips on on red or black or you know the twenty six or double zero, whatever you're going for in the casino, this is one that I think there is a decent probability of a decent outcome. But I'm not a speculative investor. I'm not even necessarily a high risk investor. Uh, I want to see fundamentals that justify an investment case. So I can't say you should buy it. I wouldn't hold it if I owned it. I'd sell it. Uh, but I do want to flag there is. Just on the, the base of Michael's kind of last comment, the, the, the where, if and when the economy recovers, I think it's when, as long as GTN doesn't go to the wall in the meantime, I don't think there's any real likelihood of that. Mm. It should be well positioned to actually benefit on the upswing. And if it does, I'd be remarkably surprised if the share price stays at this level. So again, both sides of my mouth, it's a sell for me, uh, but it is one that if, if you either had the desire to play a bit of a riskier game or more importantly, maybe it may be better one to put on the watch list if and when you see those fundamentals start to improve, it may be one you want to have a very close look at. All right. But you're saying you may be better off taking your money down at the local casino instead. All right. Pretty much. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's sum it up. The first half of the show began with our stock of the day. Uh, that was the insurer IAG. This is uh, off the back of its uh, investor day yesterday. Uh, both having a, a hold on it. Talking about saying it's not, it's not cheap but recognising perhaps it's among the better quality insurers out there. The stocks as picked by you, ALS was the first one there. It's um, sort of mining services really and providing uh, testing and inspection. Uh, also a hold from both on ALS. Keener Securities, uh, it's like sovereign risk, certainly the name of the game here, given it's operating in Papua New Guinea. Uh, but uh, Scott pointing out there does have compelling value. However, uh, no, look, he, he's not convinced by it. He, uh, no, but maybe a hold. Uh, but uh, and Michael also pointing out the risks uh, involved there. He's got to sell on it. Platinum Asset Management. Well, asset management obviously has been difficult, as we've seen with Magellan and the like. Uh, Michael has a sell on it, saying, look, it peaked eight years ago. Hasn't been able to turn it around since that point. Uh, Scott also pointing out disappointing earnings. But he's got a hold on it, although he's not, he's not a convincing hold. Um, cost of group there, that ag-related stock. Uh, Scott talking about the uh, significant pricing power it has, but it is volatile, given it's obviously affected by the weather and, and the like there. He's got a hold on it, as does Michael, although it's a tentative hold from Michael talking about those risks. And just finally, their global traffic network. Uh, no from Michael pointing out just how illiquid it is. And uh, Scott has a sell on it, no confidence there, uh, and uh, as it, uh, it needs to turn to return to profitability. All right, so that's the first half of the show. Of course, we do have our own high conviction fund here, which is picked by our investment committee. The latest episode of that is live for you to watch at osbiz.com. Checking in on the update thus far going into June. South 32 was replaced by Altium. Woodside was removed. It's weighting a 3% split between CSL, Linus and West Farmers. Uh, Elders was moved. 
It's waiting a split between newly added Vita Medical and RPM Global Holdings. So, in terms of performance, it's up around 7.5% on a cumulative return basis since the March, beginning of March last year, in fact. So keep your requests uh, coming in. Keep course switched on to see which stocks our committee will be looking at next. Next half of the show, we'll be looking at Servcorp, Calix, Karun Energy, Yankol, and Electro Optic Systems. So the first one there, Servcorp, picked by Dunn. Uh, it is, uh, well, it sort of provides service offices, uh, virtual offices, mean rooms, IT services, and the like. Um, interesting, I'm just wondering, Scott, how you're looking at this and whether this, again, it really depends on the nature of the economy and how that's traveling. <laughs> it does, Andrew. And, and this one is one that was a real stock market darling 10, 15 years ago, has fallen on much tougher times trying to deliver uh, profit growth, particularly over the past five years, a big fall in 2018, and then really hasn't been able to do much consistently to grow. A couple of years of growth, then a year of decline, back now roughly to where sales and profits were in 2020. It's a tough one for not only economic reasons, mate, but for reasons of workforce uh, location, of, of flexibility, the way we might or might not be working in future. We've talked so regularly about the move towards working from home or probably more reasonably flexible working, some combination, hybrid working of working from home, working from the office. We've seen some big corporate landlords like Westpac meaningfully reduce their head office uh, footprint, basically saying we don't need this much space anymore. Servcorp's key business way before WeWork arrived uh, was to provide flexible office space for smaller, medium businesses or businesses simply wanted to have the ability to kind of add or subtract uh, space as they needed to, either permanently or on, a, on an as-required basis. So the first challenge was the WeWorks of the world, where it was kind of a bit cooler and a bit funkier and a bit more uh, tech-friendly uh, than ServCorp was. And then the broader question about simply how much real estate is going to be required and who is going to need it, what price are they going to be charging for it? Now, ServCorp get to lease floors at a time where they can add a floor, remove a floor, over, over a decent length of, of lease periods, but they can flex their exposure in a very different way. But whether there'll be enough demand given the challenges is, is very much the question. I want to like ServCorp. I like founder-led companies. And uh, the son of Alpha Farage is also in that business, running the business as CEO from memory. This is a, a business that really should do very well. It's international. It's got lots of uh, potential. But I don't know. There's, there's a great Warren Buffett quote about um, yeah, the, a management team uh, compared to the, the economic circumstances of the business itself. And I think right now, those economic circumstances are the bigger risk of the two, mm. even though it's a P of 10 odd times, 6.5% yield, that would be an attractive price to pay for a founder-led, long-term successful business. But I have to say that the headwinds they're sailing into, the uncertainty would keep me on the sidelines. Um, if I owned it, I probably would continue to hold it. I don't think it's obviously a sell for any particular reason, unless you're expecting really significant challenges for office real estate and ServCorp to feel more than its share of those. That's certainly possible, by the way. So there may be tougher times before times improve again. Um, but I don't, think it's, I don't think it's expensive enough to sell or poor enough quality to sell. Uh, but I certainly couldn't justify buying it at the current price, given that uncertainty. Yep. I'd either want a meaningfully cheaper price or 
some sense of stability when it comes to office rentals and ServCorp's own utilization. Yep. All right, Scott. Good one. All right, Michael. Yeah, Scott making some good points mm. there, particularly as far as, you know, I've only just seen recently, of course, office valuations are tumbling yep. at the moment. That's, that's certainly not helping. Then, of course, we saw this company established maybe before the likes of Skype and Teams really mm. got going. Obviously, that was, yeah. you know, we saw that at the height of the pandemic. So, you know, what's the future hold then for a company like this? Well, um, you're right. So and to Scott's first point about who inhabits these spaces, it's, you know, those sort of one man bands or very small businesses that needed space in order to you know, come in the city, have meetings and so on. But as you just mentioned, that's taken on, um, you know, through Skype and Zoom, we don't sort of interact as much in that way anymore. So I think at this point, again, you're trying to think, okay, well, what would make this company grow their earnings? Um, yeah, we need higher demand for, for these type of businesses to to use SurfCorp services. But yeah, if you're the one-man band or the very small company where you're mostly working from home, you're your own boss, um, you're doing your meetings online now, I can't see why there'd be a, a large influx of, of demand for SurfCorp's um, services. Mm. Whereas if you're you know, an ANZ or you're a large business and you're you know, you're buying or renting out a very large uh, office building in the city, there's a higher chance that there'll be demand for those buildings because those larger companies can tell their employees, look, as we've seen with CBA, you've got to come in, you can't, you can't be working one day a week, one day a fortnight from home. So I can see office space demand improving but not for the SurfCorp type of office space, for, right. for other office space. And to your point with valuations, I think there is an opportunity with, with office space. And we saw a building get sold on Market Street a couple of days ago at a 17 point something percent discount to its valuation from December. Um, a business like Dexus trades, let's say, 30% discount to NTA. So I think if you're looking at the whole office space area and thinking there's, there's an opportunity I think there will be, um, but in the Dexas, you know, of the world or, or, or the uh, charter halls of the world, not in, yep. not in a business like Servcorp. All right, I'm calling that a no then from you. It's a no. Yep. Okay. All right. Let's move on to Calix. Uh, this one picked by Pearl. Uh, it, it sort of it comes up with products to combat uh, climate change, improving in ag and aquaculture and the like. Uh, has a particular technology of, of a kiln. Uh, and in terms of um, helping uh, reduce, uh, in terms of um, carbon, uh, the carbon footprint of various companies. Um, share price though has been hit just over the past month. Um, Michael, what can you tell us about mm. Calix? Um, yeah, it's in the right area. As you mentioned, they've got all the buzzwords on the website. Um, but look, in all seriousness, they, you know, they should end up, you know, this could well be a company that, that does really well um, in a few years from now. But at the moment, you know, their earnings are quite quite up and down. Um, it looks like they're, they're not making a profit at the moment. Um, look, yeah, just in the right space, yep. uh, too much earnings variability. I think in terms of the short term, what's been happening with the share price, there was a bit of a spike up about a month ago, um, and then the shares were dumped and they had to please explain from the ASX and in their announcement they said look we're we're unaware what's going on and there's no you know there's no plan to increase or decrease guidance in a meaningful way so mm. we've pretty much we pretty much know that there's there's nothing 
there shouldn't be anything interesting coming out pretty soon from the business to uh, provide a catalyst for it to go up. So I think it'll just continue drifting until you know, we see some more contract wins and, and some you know, more reliable um, sort of earnings over time. So do you so hold it or you sell it? Oh, look, I'd, I'd sell it because I just right. think there's better opportunities elsewhere. Yep, fair enough. All right, Scott. Yeah, I mean, you know, just taking note over the past three years, obviously really impressive uh, uh, increase in the share price. But then, of course, that has since mm. come off. So it's, it's all about the future, though, isn't it? It really is, mate. If you look at the company's financials, there probably hasn't been enough justification for that increase. Uh, sales per share have been well, they're up 20% over two years, which is okay. It's perfectly fine. Losses have got worse. Uh, at best, to Michael's point, you will look at this in five years' time and say they invested, 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 and eventually broke through in enough scale, in enough place with enough solutions, they managed to turn this thing into a profitable enterprise, and maybe there's justification in the current share price. But I have to say, when a business is accelerating losses without meaningfully growing, for sales fell year on year as well, this year versus last year, or last year versus the year before, I should say, um, it, it's a very, very tough case to make uh, to buy a business like Calix. Uh, you know, you've really got to believe very deeply in what the company's trying to do. I should say, by the way, the share counts increased by 60% over the last five years as well. So they've gone to the well a couple of times to raise capital. Um, this is not the sort of structure I'm looking for. Any business, I'm a, I'm a fundamentals-based investor, mate. I, I don't think you can look at Calix in any way other than you know moonshot hope type stuff. And again, look, it's working on environmental solutions. I, as a citizen, I hope they, they do really, really well. Uh, but there's plenty of people out there trying to do these sorts of problems or solve these sorts of problems. No reason to believe Calix has a particularly stronger claim than anybody else, certainly based on the fundamentals. As I said, maybe they're investing for the future. Maybe there's something coming up. You can afford to sit and wait for this one. Mm. If I owned it, uh, like Michael, I would sell it. There's not enough reason to own it. Yep. Okay. All right. That is a double sell then for Calix. All right. Uh, let's now get into Karoon. Uh, this one picked by Len. It is uh, oil and gas uh, exploration and production internationally, in fact, with a strong presence in Brazil. In fact, just recently, it had to suspend operations there at a containment incident. I think it has now resumed production there. So, uh, Scott, of course, a lot of this is just linked to where uh, those oil and gas prices have been and where they're going. Yes, and the latter, mate, is completely unknowable as far as I'm concerned. There are plenty of people who will try and uh, guess, forecast, predict. Maybe some will get it right. I have absolutely no ability to do that. Uh, I find it I find it a little bit nutty that the market tends to you know, have this bounce around based on a daily uh, oil price or daily futures uh, when we know we're, in theory, owning it for extended periods of time, even if you're trading it, unless you're day trading it. You know, you know what tomorrow's price, let alone next month's price or next year's price is going to be. Maybe there are some people out there watching who are uh, very good at predicting or guessing where the oil price might go. I'm certainly not one of those people. And as you rightly point out, mate, look, the operational stuff is important, uh, but at the end of the day, even a great operation can only make money if the oil price is kind, and more importantly, can only make more money than last year if the oil price is higher or they find more volumes. Those things are really difficult to predict. So when you buy the, the shares at any price, you really are doing it tough. I, I will say, I think generally speaking with commoditized industries, uh, the closer you buy to uh, when, the, when the commodity itself is near a cyclical or preferably an all-time low, the better your chance of upside almost by definition. No guarantee, by the way, things can keep falling further, uh, but generally speaking, you're close. My biggest challenge with oil and gas, mate, is that, that we know there's no fundamental basis for the current price other than the operation of a Middle East cartel. And so if you're OPEC and controlling production and controlling effectively controlling prices through that production control, you know, again, even if you could predict the the, the commodity price of a, of a free floating 
priced commodity like iron ore or gold or something else, uh, the ability to, to second guess what OPEC might do is another layer of complexity. If I own the shares, mate, I'd sell them. I don't own any oil and gas. I don't imagine I will anytime soon, if at all. Mm. Uh, it's just too difficult for me. If you're a fundamentals-based investor, I honestly don't know how you work out what Karun's earnings might be in three or five years' time with any degree of certainty whatsoever. If the price is really, really, really cheap or the, the oil price is very, very low, maybe you just do a risk-reward scenario where you say, hey, there's, there's a better chance that the oil price trades higher in future. There's a better chance the share price trades higher in future. Maybe on a pure probabilistic basis, you might have a punt from time to time. I don't think this is that time. Yep. Okay. Michael? Um, yeah, look, I wouldn't be holding current at the moment. I mean, I, you know, I'm quite positive on the general commodity sector and mm. um, but you know to Scott's point they're they're cyclical so as, as we always say you need to trade these sectors when when the time's right mm. and not being and not be in them um, at the wrong time Karoon, it's yeah it's got this situation where they've they've had these shutdowns and production problems so you know they're not they're not producing the earnings that the market would like um, you know when there's other alternatives on um, on the board short term in terms of short-term prices for for energy, um, again, hard hard to know. Look, I think I think if I was to look out over the next six to twelve months, I think we could potentially see higher energy prices just based on what's been happening with supply recently, um, with OPEC, what the Saudis have done, the US um, reserves are sitting at you know decades lows, um, almost almost all-time lows. So. Yeah, an uptick in demand could see um, a period where all prices head higher for a period of time. Um, but but yeah, look, yeah, too early. convince yourself. Yeah, uh, I mean, <laughs> to be buying today for Karoon, Yeah, um, I just yeah, I think it's too early. All right, so uh, you got to sell on that. Yeah, look, I'd sell it other alternatives elsewhere. Yeah. All right. We'll be interested to see then whether you see the next energy stock as an alternative, uh, which is Yan Coal. Let's get into that one. Mm. Uh, yes, it is coal. Uh, with mining operations, New South Wales, Queensland, WA. Impressive <coughs> yield, um, but the uh, shares have come off significantly over the past year. And I guess, Mark, you've got to ask yourself the question, short term, yes, maybe there's potential there, but of course it's the longer term story with coal, yeah. which is very negative. Yeah, that's that's right. Very long term, it's, it's very negative. Um, I think Look, I think in the medium term, there's you know the, the coal coal prices have come back a fair way um, since the peaks, uh, you know, only several months ago. But I think the demand for um, you know for coal and oil is is still there and will still be there for a while longer. It's just trying to guess, you know, what level compared to um, you know to the supply that's out there. So I, I think it's come back to a level where I'd be happy to. To hold Yan Coal. Um, if we have a look at, I mean, the share price bottomed out in 2021, and it clearly had that huge uplift um, uh, early last year with with the Russian invasion. But it looks like the share price has come back to the trend that it should have been on. Mm. Um, yeah, not not massively compelling right now to buy it, but um, I think there's you know, potential for upside, more upside than downside in coal prices from here and. Um, but again, you know, asking a year from now and yep. the story could be completely different. Well, and that, that is to Scott's point too, isn't it? Yeah. So, well, okay, so you've got a hold on it. Scott, I'm, I'm then assuming that, as with the last stock, it's an energy stock, uh, as to Michael's point there, you know, you don't know what it's going to be in a year's time. No idea. 
Yeah, correct, mate. Uh, look, uh, that being said, it's trading at one t- 1.7 times earnings currently. So if I was interested in Keener at three and a half, I should be interested in Yankol at that. Yeah. The problem is that, as you rightly point out, so it's trading at 1.7 times last year's earnings, seven times the year before, and the year before that, it was making a loss. And so you kind of you look at those swings and roundabouts and say, man, how do you how do you even have a guess at what this might be worth in future? Michael's right. Look, the, I, I you know. Policy-wise, regardless of what you think about climate change as, a, as an issue, policy-wise, there is going to be continued pressure on coal. What I would be worried about with all of these coal miners, Yang Coal, New Hope, um, Whitehaven, is what they do with the cash flows. Because at some point, if you think it's likely, as I do, that politicians will continue, based on community pressure, to clamp down on the ability of these guys to expand, mine, sell this coal, particularly in Australia, probably overseas as well, you get to a point where... If these are stranded assets, if all you've done is reinvest in coal mines, there is there's a zero at the end of that that channel at some point. So the real question is how much money goes to shareholders in the meantime. Dianco's credit dividend yield, given that PE is currently 21. percent Now it's clearly not sustainable, so don't buy Yankov for the dividend. But uh, it, you know that that's the question is what do they do with the cash? I don't think you you buy it either. Uh, again, the reverse would have been true. The time to buy it would have been, by the way, back when they made that loss. Uh, as Michael was talking about, that those are the opportunities to, to invest kind of counter-cyclically in these things because they are cyclical beasts, as, as he mentions. So, no, I, I wouldn't buy it today. Yep. It seems obvious. It's very, very hard to pass up given those numbers. But if you remember, these things are cyclical. At the time when everything looks best, that's probably the time to be most fearful or at least most conservative when it comes to the way you invest in these businesses. Yep. Okay. All right. Let's round it out then with, uh, this is interesting. Uh, I haven't come across this before. It's sort of something out of Thunderbirds, really. When you look, electro-optic <laughs> systems, it uh, deals with space debris, satellite management, remote control weapon systems, uh, telecommunications, space, well, space communications. Uh, it does sound very futuristic, doesn't it? Uh, look, but it has just won a, a new contract uh, with what it calls an unnamed Western European government. So, look, it has the money coming in there. Um, Scott, well, have you come across this before? What do, you, what do you make of this stock? Yeah, I have actually, Andrew. A couple of the guys at the Fool have followed this one for the, on, the, on their own interest. Uh, this, is, this is super high tech, really. As you said, Thunderbirds, uh, I'm thinking space lasers, mate. I'm going Dr. Evil with this one. Uh, <laughs> right. but, but part of the challenge is, as you said, that, that announcement of an unnamed Western government, this, these defence contract businesses are so incredibly opaque by definition, by necessity. And so as an analyst, you've got to ask yourself, how much do I really know about this? How much do I know about the market, the deals they're doing, how likely more deals are? They can't name the customers for, for absolutely perfectly good reasons. As an investor, you ask yourself, okay, if I don't know those things, even, even though they're right not to share them, it means I'm starting behind a couple of steps. And do I really need to take the risk on this one? It's a business that's been all over the place, sales and profit-wise. They've made money in three of the last 10 years, lost money in seven of those years. Uh, the losses seem to be accelerating. The, the sales is all over the place. Um, this, is, this is just a pure too hard basket, mate. No, no profitability recently. Profit, worst profit in 10 years based on the numbers I'm seeing here. You just don't need to be investing in these businesses unless you really know them and have a reason to do so. So uh, the investor should have a very, very large too hard basket. Michael's already mentioned some for him already uh, this episode. I'm going to put EOS firmly in mind. Mm. I don't think you can know what the future looks like for this business, in which case it just becomes a, a punt and nothing more. That's not my go, so I'd sell if I own them. Yeah, well, it is a moonshot, isn't it? Very hit and miss. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, okay. Michael? Yeah, look, I think... Scott and I have mostly agreed on everything. Um, 
But, but I'm going to say this one's a speculative buy. Oh, to, uh, right. Oh, put it, there put we it go. out there. Well, we, had to, we had to have one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, on terms of the negative side of the ledger, it's all been mentioned. But the reason why I have it as a speculative buy is as a charting man, there's something going on here with the way it's bottomed out. Um, and it seems to be moving quite nicely when I look at the volumes going through the stock. So, yeah, look, to me, it's um, speculative buy just purely on the way it's trading. There seems to be something going on with the buying. Um, it might have found a low. I mean, you have to run stop losses and all that to make sure you know, you're not sort of bag holding and losing half your money. But um, yeah, look, maybe maybe the technicals in this case are, are leading the fundamentals, which they, they often do. Um, and there might be a few more contract wins around the corner. I don't know, but yep. just really like the way it's trading. So as a pure trade, um, I'd, yeah, I'd say it's a speculative buy. Yep. Okay, good one. Well, we like that. Uh, you just uh, made a market there for <laughs> Electro Optic Systems. All right, let's sum up where we've been for the second half of the show. It began with ServeCorp. Um, as Scott pointed out, it used to be a market darling, but... Uh, well, how things have changed in terms of uh, office space and what is required, particularly working from home. Uh, but Scott does have a hold on it, uh, but tending towards a, a no. Uh, but Michael is a, a definite no in regards to that, given uh, how things have changed. Uh, Calyx, look, both very negative on this. Uh, it is a sell from both. It is in that um, sort of climate management for businesses there, but uh, it is appears to be sort of struggling at this point. Uh, Karoon Energy, we've got a couple of energy stocks here to uh, to get through. Yeah, Karoon in oil and gas, both a sell on Karoon. Um, just uh, talking about, uh, well, difficult to know where those uh, those energy prices are going. Same really applying for Yankol. Uh, uh, but Michael pointing out demand is still there. So he does have a hold on it, seeing potential upside there. Uh, whereas Scott, no. Um, and uh, pointing out the, look, the potential there, so longer term as far as stranded assets for uh, coal miners are concerned. And then finally there, interesting, um, with uh, electro-optic systems, um, Scott pointing out it is a very opaque business. It's very secretive about where it's getting its business from uh, and losses accelerating there. So he's avoiding it, whereas Michael has a speculative bias saying, just looking at the chart, it appears to bottom out. So he's seeing upside potential there. All right, fascinating. That is the show today. Thanks to our guest, uh, Michael. Thanks for joining us from Fairmont Equities. Thank you. Scott, always good. Thanks for joining us from uh, Holly Fool. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Michael. Lots of fun. All right. And of course, uh, any uh, stocks you'd like us to cover, you can go to uh, osbiz.co forward slash call picks or tweet us at osbiz.tv. Stay with us. The Pulse is coming up. Mm-hmm.